Hey everybody, Professor Crunch here from the RPG Academy with some freebies from our show sponsor, BattleBards.com. BattleBards is releasing a brand new suite of tracks called Pirates and the Grand Ocean. And I have some coupon codes so you can get some freebies and check them out. If you pick up the $10 or $25 credit package, enter code AHOY1, that is A-H-O-Y number one, at checkout and you'll get a free track. If you buy the $50 or $100 package, enter code AHOY2 for five free tracks. And if you buy the $150 or $300 package, you guessed it, code AHOY3 is going to get you 16 free tracks. And these coupon codes do download the tracks right into your library so you can see them before you make any other purchases. These codes are redeemable once per person per account. As someone who uses BattleBards all the time for the Wrought Iron Actual Play series, believe me, these tracks are brilliant. You will love them. BattleBards makes it so easy to use these tracks in your home game. So swing over, get some credits, get some freebies, and prepare to hit the high seas in your home game in style. I'm nervous. Look away. Look away. Look away. Look back. And back. Hello and welcome to Faculty Meeting, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and I have brought along with me tonight, as I always do, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how are you doing this fine evening, sir? I am dealing with a glitch in the matrix tonight, Michael. Uh, This feels like the fifth time we've done this, maybe the sixth. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about, sir. It's a glitch in the matrix. It just happens. (laughs) It just happened. Fantastic. Oh, look, a black cat. Oh, God. So, for anybody who might be new and listening to our show for the first time, and hopefully there are some of you, we want to take a couple seconds to talk about why we're here. Caleb and I like to use these faculty meeting episodes to talk about the experience that he and I have gleaned from our many years of playing tabletop RPGs. But we understand that the opinions we share and the advice we give may not work at every table every time. But there is one piece of advice that we do feel is pretty universal. And Caleb, what is that one piece of advice? If you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct, sir. That is the motto here at the RPG Academy, that no matter what game you play, what system or edition, what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, if you're having fun, then you're doing it right. So needless to say, the last six or so weeks of the RPG Academy has been a bit of a roller coaster slash whirlwind. Wouldn't you say, Caleb? I've been sitting here in my basement. I'm fine. What What's going on? <laughs> so, so any of our long-term listeners probably already know some of the craziness that has happened. Hopefully they will forgive us a bit of repetition for anybody who might be fairly new or maybe checking in for the first time. But we had a short period of time where our podcast was nominated for an award, an any award to be specific. And if you're not familiar with that, it's uh, hosted by the EN World website, uh, which is one of the longest running RPG related news sites that I'm aware of. 
every year at Gen Con, they give away an award called the Innies. And then there's all these various categories for best new RPG, best supplement, best art, best cartography, best writing. And one of those is best podcast. And for those of, you know, within that circle who, who care about those things, being nominated is a pretty huge honor. And we obviously were honored to have been among those that were considered and nominated for the award. Spoilers, we didn't win, but it was still, getting that nomination was pretty exciting. But then something happened. Uh, another glitch in the Matrix? Gremlins? <laughs> you, you could say that. Uh, the very next day, our show got pulled off of iTunes. A conspiracy. It was a conspiracy, <laughs> I say. Ken and Robin. Those bastards. So... Uh, technically, it was a third-party copyright infringement claim. Uh, long story short, it had to do with the fact that we used to call these episodes table Boop. topics. <laughs> I'm just watching out uh, for you, man. I'm worried at this point. I, I appreciate that. Uh, but apparently, table topics is a copyrighted term. And even though our show is not called that, we were using that as sort of like a title on some of the episodes. And iTunes was all but useless in helping us resolve this. We finally talked to the lawyer of the their people filing the claim. Within 10 minutes, we had it resolved. We agreed to change the name to something else. They agreed to let us go back on iTunes, but it still took like six or seven days, it seems like, before iTunes actually got us back up on the air. So we went from the highest of highs, being nominated for an any, to the lowest of lows. No one being able to find our show, completely removed from iTunes as if we never existed. And having to change the title of, of the type of show that got us nominated. We got nominated for Table Topics, now Faculty Meeting, Episode 84. The only reason I bring this up, again, in case somebody is fairly new, is that you may hear us in some of the older episodes as we're introducing these shows as Table Topics. Or some of the really old ones might be called Dungeon Talks. They're all called Faculty Meetings now on the text. That's what they will be going forward. But yeah, we pretty much had to change them to get put back on iTunes. But we went to the Gen Con which we're going to talk, the, the la latter half of this episode is going to be a bit of a Gen Con recap. The first part, we're going to do a normal topic. We didn't win, uh, but we still, again, honored to be nominated. And um, that was exciting. And then we kind of kind of settled back down. It's like, okay, you know, that's good. But then something possibly even more exciting happened. Caleb? The opposite of a glitch in the Matrix. Hitchlug? I don't know how to say that backwards. I'm making a really bad joke here, guys. Come on. I know. I'm already going, am I going to edit that out? <laughs> do, I even, do I ever want to re-reference it or just ignore it so that I can get a clean place to cut? The opposite of a glitch in the Matrix? <laughs> Specifically, we got invited to be on the Watsy podcast, Dragon Talk. This is the official Wizards of the Coast podcast. It's hosted by... Greg and Shelly, and they, apparently, Greg had started listening to our show, kind of liked what he was hearing, and this is something they've, they've started to do. They kind of have had an outreach to some of the other content creators uh, in the podcast world. We were one of the first, not the first podcast to be on there, but it was a huge freaking deal and a huge freaking honor for me in a game that I've been playing now for about 30 years. I mean, we have a podcast. We talk about role-playing games. We have our own convention where we host gamers and game designers and podcasters to bring together for a weekend to play RPGs. 
So it's easy to say RPGs are a very big part of our lives. And in me specifically, I'm a D&D fanboy. So that is my favorite role-playing game. And to be asked to be part of that in any way was mind-boggling for me. Absolutely. Being on the official WotC podcast was an honor. It was a privilege. And I think it demonstrates a very cool acknowledgement from the parent company to this hobby of them uh, listening to a couple of schmucks like us who just like their products and are so invested in a game and a hobby that they spend all their free time talking into the internet about it. Yeah, it was a lot of validation and just exciting. So so we had that. That episode came out just a few days ago. And yes, there's been a lot of buzz. We've Our, our download numbers have certainly spiked, uh, which is why we're sort of going back and recovering a little bit because I feel like there's probably some people this might be the first episode of our show they've ever heard and want to give a little bit better context to what that would be. Uh, so normally, uh, what we do is we just we talk about things. We don't present a lot of information. We don't say, here's how you should do something. It's more of a conversation where we'll come up with a topic. It's either something that we've experienced ourselves at our own tables, either good or bad, maybe something that we did that didn't work, and we want to talk about what we did and why, what we learned from it. Uh, sometimes if we did something that worked really well, we want to share that experience. And then uh, here lately, I've been getting a lot of different topics from message boards that I'm a part of, both Reddit, Facebook, and some other places. And that's where today's topic is going to come from. And I am very excited about this topic because it, it is, in my mind, kind of the perfect crossroads of different avenues of thought. And even myself, I don't know right now what I'm going to say about this topic. I haven't made up my mind yet. But essentially, the question was this. A DM was asking for advice and suggestions on how they should handle the situation. They have a player in their game who is playing a rogue character, and they want to use their skills in a combat scene to essentially weaken or nullify the armor class of a potential enemy. And gathering through the multiple back and forth questions and answers, I get the feeling that the player thinks that they should be able to just basically take the armor off of a bad guy uh, or an NPC, I should say. So like they're wearing, you know, heavy plate or something that if they use sleight of hand or some other dexterity based attack or a skill check in, in this case, they should be able to like slice through the straps and the webbings. And, you know, think of like a cartoon where just all of a sudden the armor just falls off and now they're unarmored so that the armor class is basically, you know, back to normal dexterity. And I'm all about using skills in combat. I think you should encourage and reward that type of behavior. But this one in particular is kind of interesting because if that's something you do, how do you make it so it's not so effective that everyone should do it? And it then becomes something that you're protected against. And, and people on the message board, some of them were saying, you know, I've studied armor making and people specifically make armor to not be able to do that. You know, that that is something people are, are working against. So if you're wearing armor, the webbings and the straps are hidden in ways to make that nearly impossible to do. But again, RPGs aren't modeling reality. It's more of a magical realism where you can do these crazy things. So, again, I'll just kind of throw it to you, Caleb, and we can start the conversation. In general, how do you feel about using skills in combat? And then with this specifically, how do you think you would handle it? Or would you even let a player do this? Well, to answer the second question first, yes. Of course I would allow it. I want to say yes at the game table, not no. 
This is the yes and principle, not just continuing the scene, but rewarding the players for being engaged, thinking of exciting, interesting, unique ways to approach a, a, a problem that you present to them. And an enemy hitting you with a sword is a problem to solve. Normally, you solve it by hitting them back. Stab them with the pointy end. Stab them with the pointy end. So here is a different way to solve that problem. And since typically skills represent something unique that your character is invested in beyond how to stab someone, I absolutely want to reward a unique, out-of-the-box, creative thought process of using those skills. That being said, yes, you do want to make sure that you are not breaking the game, ruining the balance, or creating some sort of new paradigm. Sure, yeah, a new paradigm that just alters the entire structure of the game. And yes, uh, real medieval armor, you couldn't just walk up and cut it off. That's a movie thing. That's a TV thing. But this is Dungeons & Dragons. There are dragons. There's a dude in a robe behind you throwing a fireball that violates the principles of physics to generate. Uh, There's a dude in more armor praying to a deity to make holy things happen. Ain't none of this is real, guys. It's okay. There's a dude that talks to trees and turns into a goddamn wolf. It's all right. We can play pretend. Remember when you were five and you played pretend? That's what we're doing now. We just pay more to do it because we're idiots. (laughs) Okay, so I'm with you. I I want to say yes to this as well. Uh, You know, if somebody wants to do the cool thing, I want that to be just as easy and just as effective as the normal thing so that players are face off with NPCs. We just keep rolling D20s and it becomes basically a war of attrition. Uh, you know, I roll mine, you roll yours, and we see who's still left when all the hit points are, have been added or subtracted. So how do we do this? How do we model this this specific activity where you allow a rogue to neutralize, nullify someone's armor class that doesn't make it a game-breaking talent that now everyone should do. So first off, I think we should make it clear, we're not going to come with a definitive answer today. Let's just make sure everyone who's listening has that expectation. We don't deal with answers here at the RPG Academy. We just throw ideas out, and maybe one of them works. This is a liberal arts college. We're here to teach you to think for yourself. Exactly. We don't give answers. We give methods to find answers. So I I think when we're approaching this subject, we want to look for inspiration. We want to look for other systems that maybe have done it well or another way to replicate this mechanic that we're talking about. So why don't we go back to the game itself? In 3.5 Dungeons & Dragons, or Pathfinder... Sundering. Sundering, exactly. And there were even other feats that specifically focused on removing or nullifying armor. Uh, A lot of the, for example, ranged combat feats let you pin a shield to a wall, or knock a shield or a weapon out of someone's hand. This is exactly what we're talking about. Dungeons and Dragons and many other role-playing games have rules for disarming people. Isn't that effectively the same thing, just in a slightly different application? 
your knowledge of three, five and Pathfinder, I'm sure is more up to date and more complete than mine, but I think Sundering did actually include armor class nullification specifically that as well, not just disarming weapons or breaking them, but actually yes, ruining armor and making armor class less effective. I don't recall the method to that, but based on 3.5, I'm going to assume it was overly complicated. Yes, it was. Pathfinder made it a little more simple with the principles of a combat maneuver bonus and defense which was essentially just another type of armor class and d20-based attack roll, but it encompassed all of the crazy things you do that isn't stabbing someone. It was everything from grapples to trips to rush to sundering to shooting an arrow and pinning their their arm to a wall. (laughs) Combat maneuvers encompassed all of that. But in general... Because this is a D20 system, it boiled down to making an attack roll and applying different bonuses and penalties. So I I know, well, I want to step in. I'm pretty sure that with at least the disarming, that there was also an opposed roll, uh, which is one of the reasons why I didn't like it as much, because it, it was then automatically more difficult than just stabbing it with the stick, because you could succeed, but then still fail if the other person rolled better than you. Exactly. And that was a feature of 3.5. Uh, 3.5 relegated a lot of these I want to do something other than stabbing you options to opposed roles and charts that went based off if you were using strength or dexterity, if you had this feat, if the opponent had that feat, if they were a size category larger than you or smaller than you. It was complicated as all get out. Pathfinder threw all that away and said, you have a combat maneuver defense, period. If I want to disarm you, I roll against your combat maneuver defense. If I want to trip you, I roll against your combat maneuver defense. And there were, of course, feats and certain situations that said, I have a bonus to my defense for being disarmed or being tripped or being grappled. Or I have a bonus to my attack if I am grappling or tripping, that type of thing. So Pathfinder tried to make it a lot simpler. It's still not a perfect system, but... The D20 system is not a perfect system. It, it's not reality. It's game rules to do a thing, and it, it doesn't work right. It doesn't mirror reality. You have to encompass that and embrace it. Uh, I, I think what we need to get to, though, is if a rogue wants to try to use skills to mess with an opponent, I'm going to say yes. I'm still going to ask for a skill check or an attack roll because it's still a d20 roll, and that's how Dungeons & Dragons works. It functions on rolling a d20. So I'm not going to make up another roll. I'm not going to make up some other system or chart. I want to use the foundation of the system. I think that's fair and correct. But I will get probably creative about the target number to hit. So I might add a penalty to the roll or a bonus to the defender. 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons has the whole advantage-disadvantage mechanic already baked in, but I feel like simply using that isn't really reflecting what we want to do because we want to make this challenging. We want to make it special. Otherwise, every single person says, all right, on my initiative, the first thing I do, I roll to take off his armor, and the next turn I roll to hit him. That's what the game becomes. So this needs to be something that either only this character does or 
requires enough specialization to balance out by losing another ability. If we want to go back to Pathfinder for a moment, in the later books and supplements of Pathfinder, and I think 3.5 had this too, rogues specifically could sacrifice sneak attack dice to get special abilities. And let's be honest, if you're playing a rogue, you're sneak attacking. You're getting those extra d6s. So there were feats and class abilities that said you sacrifice 2d6 sneak attack to do x, apply a penalty, cut the opponent's speed in half, get an advantage on your next attack, or transfer the advantage to somebody else. So basically it was converting sneak attack to a resource that the rogue could spend. Now 5th edition gave fighters this resource. They have superiority dice. So fighters have a baked-in resource to do things. It's not just piling on damage. They can spend superiority dice for rerolls or an extra effect. Maneuvers, essentially. Exactly. And that's isn't that exactly what we're talking about? A special maneuver that you can only do in a certain situation that has a cost to doing it. So if you are able to sneak attack, so all the elements that are all the requirements for sneak attack are present, you, instead of doing sneak attack damage, you can, on a successful roll, reduce armor class. Is it by one? Is it by two? Because, again, you don't want to make it ineffective, where if you're fighting someone who has an armor class of 21, you know, 21 to 20, then 20 to 19. So four rounds later, they're down to a regular armor class. If they would just have done their sneak attack damage, it might be dead by now. What if it is a temporary penalty? Fifth edition really moved to eliminate the endless applications of bonuses and penalties that were simply numerical as compared to 3.5 fourth edition Pathfinder. But what if we bring that back just for this situation? What if instead of trying to alter the armor class of an opponent, we just say, in this situation, the opponent now has a negative 4 to AC for X period. I mean, a lot of what happens in 5th edition is until the start of your next turn. So what if, instead of sneak attacking, the rogue can apply an X penalty until the start of his or her next turn? What if the penalty is the number of sneak attack dice you have, you sacrifice all of them, basically, to do this thing, and that penalty only lasts for one round? So until the start of your next turn, this opponent has negative one, negative two, negative three, negative four, whatever. So anybody can take advantage of it, but tactically you have to plan this to happen. And if it's only until the start of your next turn, that means the rogue basically can't abuse it by... They don't get their own benefit. They're giving it to everyone else. Right. So, I mean, that models the help action some, because you always have that option where I can say, I'm just helping you. It's essentially like flanking, and I'm now giving advantage to the next person that attacks, as long as, again, I think there's some requirements to that happening. So if you could then pass that advantage to multiple allies, that does become pretty powerful. I think other people have ran the math. Advantage works out to roughly a plus five on your attack. I think that works great. It doesn't model 
the reality of what the player is going for very well because essentially it's temporary. And if I'm cutting your armor off, are you able to shake it back on or do you, do you adjust for the fact that it's now not working and that's why the penalty goes away? Or do we just say, okay, you now get disadvantage for the rest of the fight. That models the reality we're going for with the armor worse. But then I think we're stepping into this is too powerful. If I can do that at the beginning of every turn, you can make the BBEG's armor completely ineffective. So I, I like like 90% of that. Yeah, I I do not agree that it should be a permanent change. However, there were options for permanently destroying weapons and shields in older editions of the game. But that is something that a lot of people chose to ignore. Remember the old Rust Monster? That was kind of a, a dick move to put into your game, right? <laughs> uh, I guess. And there was... A, a couple other monsters, more than a couple, that would specifically target magic items or magic armor only to destroy them, right? Putting those in your game as a GM was a really horrible thing to do because if you just used it, you were completely destroying what your players had built for and saved and created. So I think that completely destroying something is not fun. Because if I can do it as a player, that means the GM can do it to me. That's only fair. And if I am, as a player, targeted by a minion or a thug or a mid-level boss, and he walks up, makes a roll, and destroys my armor that I spent four levels saving the gold for, or was uh, an artifact or a piece that had been passed down to me by my father— that game becomes stupid right then in that moment. <laughs> so I, I don't think permanency is what we want to do here. I think temporary is fine. And a lot of 5th edition assumes more is happening than just what happens in the role. Like, we know that hit points are stamina, not exactly blood and flesh wounds, right? We can assume that Characters are very competent in what they do, and if a temporary penalty is applied to a fighter, because that's what you're going to see, right? You're going to see this ability used against a tank in combat, uh, the thing that is in front of you hitting you with a sword. I would assume that a skilled and competent fighter who got surprise attacked and whose armor is a little bit askew or knocked loose or something, could very easily step back, take a defensive posture for a moment, readjust, and compensate in terms of stance, holding my weapon differently, moving the armor quickly, that kind of thing. But here's the bigger question. Not everything wears armor. If this ability exists and I want to hit a bugbear or a dragon, can I not do that ability anymore? Yeah, I mean, this isn't going to be effective, at least in this regard, you know, the armor class against all things. You, you could argue something like a dragon. Maybe, yeah, you're, you, you pop off a scale, so you're now creating a weak spot for another character to, um, you know, utilize. But, you know, again, an owlbear, it really doesn't make a lot of sense there. I mean, we could always say that we, we call this ability create advantage, even though they use the term advantage, so we probably don't want to use that. Yeah, opportunity maybe, but then there's opportunity tags. Right, so we, we call the move create whatever, 
And we don't say you are cutting off the opponent's armor. We say you are creating a temporary advantage that your teammates can take advantage of because they now have a penalty to their armor class. Right. If you want to flavor it, I roll in, I roll my attack, I, I, I cut the leather strap so his breastplate slips forward a little bit, and I point it out to my friend Rothgar the Barbarian. Here, attack him here. Great. If I'm fighting on Owlbear, I say, all right, I, I slip forward, and while we're fighting, I notice that he's favoring a leg. So I, I, I stick my dagger in to make it more apparent that everyone else should hit him here. Right, you're you're temporarily creating an advantage that someone else can utilize. I think the method you've described there makes a lot of sense, uh, and probably mathematically, it is much more balanced than what I would come up with. Because again, you are the crunch master, I am Professor Fluff. So a- as we've been talking, I've kind of been formulating my thought, and let me, let me lay on you what I'm thinking. Lay away. This is a very situational ability. It's it's not going to come into play very often. You know, if you're fighting someone who has an armor class of, let's say, 14 to 15, are you really going to waste a sneak attack to make it go down by one? I don't know that that's a good trade-off because probably just doing the sneak attack damage is more valuable in that fight than it is lowering their armor class by one or two or maybe, you know, maybe giving an advantage, possibly. So I think this is a very situational, you know, it's a very situational situation where it's probably only like the the henchman, the lieutenant, maybe even the BBEG himself, you know, like this this character who has this really powerful armor. At the end of the day, I want the rogue to be able to do something that is just as effective as if they just said, I'm going to stab it. Because again, that's always a trade-off for me. I don't want them to feel like I did a thing and it was a wasted turn because I should have just stabbed it. That would have been better for everybody. So my thought is, surprisingly, let's just go with some fluff here, in a way. You just let them attack. And you could still even do it as a skill check if you want to, but basically you're rolling the d20, you're trying to get over their armor class. And then you roll damage, like you normally would. And I give the rogue the option. For every five points of damage, let's say lower levels, it may go, it may scale up. For every X points of damage, you can choose not to do that damage, and you can lower the thing's armor class by one in return. So if I did 15 points of damage, I could instead do no damage and lower its armor class by three for the remainder of the battle. And the reason why I think this is okay is it's a very direct correlation. I could have done 15 points of damage. Instead, I chose to do this. I could do five, still do some damage and lower it by two because you're still sticking a dagger into a dude. It's not unreasonable that that would also hurt, uh, you know, in addition to cutting some straps. And as we've talked about many times on here before, and a couple times specifically, I know that it's not fun to miss in D&D. I would much rather fight something that has a low armor class and a ton of hit points than I would something I can never hit. So what's to say that behind the screen, I go, okay, this guy has 80 hit points. No, he's got 90. He's easier to hit. Everybody's going to get to hit. Everybody thinks it's awesome. Eh, maybe he has damage resistance at two. Maybe he has 100 hit points. I can easily adjust the hit points behind the screen. No one's ever going to know that. I let that player feel comfortable and confident and rewarded for what they did. And it doesn't really change the difficulty of the battle, which I think I'm okay with. Because I don't want this to be a cheat that's exploited. 
but I want that player to feel like they were rewarded for doing the thing that they did. And I think that accomplishes both. You attack, you do some damage, you lower the armor class, everyone else gets to hit. The battle goes on basically the same way it would. Everybody technically is happy. That's not a bad idea because you're basically letting the player pick his or her reward for coming up with this idea. And you are demonstrating an effective exchange in currency. If the damage becomes the currency or the resource that we're managing, we're saying, okay, that's a great idea. Do you want to sacrifice 10 damage to apply a negative two penalty? Now, in that example, if that opponent now has a negative two penalty for the entire rest of the fight, I think giving up 10 damage is well worthwhile. And I think it also gives the opportunity, let's say that sneak attack damage is very high, which can be, then you could model that and then the armor falls off, Mm -hmm. which is what the player wants anyways. They want that moment, which again, at the table is going to be awesome. Everyone's going to laugh. Everyone's going to love that moment where, you know, Sarah traded in 37 points of sneak attack damage on her crit. Instead, the giant paladin BBEG is now naked on the battlefield. That's going to be a story that's told for a long time. Right, exactly. And I feel as we've been talking about this, we've been focusing a lot on the mechanics of how it happens and that kind of thing. We need to address the fact that sometimes cool things happen in the story and they should just happen. Michael, you always bring up the topic, is there a chandelier? Of course there is. Of course there is. If you're in a bar fight and someone says, hey, is there a chandelier I can swing on? You answer yes. Yes. Always. Because why? Because it's a cool moment. It's exciting. If a player is at my table and this player says, hey, wait a minute, and gets all excited. If I run up and do this and this and use my sleight of hand skill, can I take this guy's armor off? I'm going to say yes, because that's just as exciting as jumping and swinging on a chandelier. And sure, that might screw up the game a little bit. What if my big bad evil guy had really cool magic armor that was going to kick in later? Well, the players don't know that, so I just move the magic somewhere else. It's his belt. It's his ring. It's his sword. I think the cinematic exciting moment of the rogue running in and cutting a dude's armor off is entertaining. If it happened in a movie, that would be an awesome scene, right? You'd want to watch that scene in a movie. If this was a video game cutscene, absolutely that would happen. And that's actually, that's what that reminds me of. And I can almost imagine creating a challenge that is sort of like that, where you're fighting, maybe even it's like a, a, a living armor situation, and you have to break the armor down to open up the the target inside that could be a cool thing. And if it's already been done, then it's not going to seem like such a stretch in trying to get the players to figure out what you're doing. And consider including different types of challenges in a combat encounter. Normally you think combat encounter, everyone rolls initiative, everyone's fighting, right? What if you start the combat encounter with the living suit of armor? The the fighter, the barbarian... They're paladin. They're smacking away at it. It doesn't seem to be going down. Mechanically, either they're, uh, it's not doing any damage. Its AC is so high they can't connect. It has crazy DR damage resistance. Who knows? Whatever. 
they are not doing damage to it. You either tell the player who with the rogue, or you let them figure it out with some skill checks, that they need to do a skill challenge in the middle of combat to weaken or expose the weakness of this gigantic monster that the tanks and the spell slingers cannot hurt. Didn't combat just get way more exciting right now? Because now you're... I think so. Yeah. Now, instead of just, okay, I'm the rogue, I'm going to run up, I'm going to make sure I have advantage, I'm going to make sure I'm flanking, I roll sneak attack, I roll a, a, a buttload of extra dice. Great. Next turn. Do I still have advantage? Yes. A buttload of extra dice. That's cool. That's fun. But what if instead it becomes, all right, rogue, you need to get five successful skill checks before you take damage to rip off the breastplate of this giant monster and expose its soft, gooey center. Now, as a player, I'm going to be running around. I'm going to be more actively engaged in narrating how I'm fighting, what I'm doing, how I dodge attacks, how I get behind the tank real quick and then jump back out to try to attack. I'm going to be thinking a lot more narratively and not just mechanically. And that's something that maybe the spell slingers then step in on. Oh, wait a minute. I'm going to use some utility spells and not just burn my fireball over and over. Now I'm going to cast levitate so the, the rogue can jump up in the air higher. I'm going to cast invisibility so we can get behind the monster and, and cut at the armor. I'm going to use feather fall so the barbarian can throw the rogue up in the air and he falls down slowly to land on the thing's head for the final skill check. You know, you're going to be thinking more... How do we do something really cool to make this more than just I hit the thing until it's dead? It's kind of funny that you mentioned that. I'm actually working on one of my next articles about uh, the way I do skill challenges. I know we've talked about it a little bit, but I wanted to do a written version. And one of the examples that I use is sort of a, you know, like a world destroying artifact is, is awoken. And it starts to crawl almost like a you know monstrosity and there's a town in the way. And rather than the characters having to combat it, they, it's a skill challenge. And that's almost exactly what you're talking about, is they have to work together to pry open its outer shell to get into the inner workings. You know, skill challenges were essentially a way to try to make social encounters just as exciting and, and kind of play the same way that combat does. But there's nothing to say that you couldn't make a combat encounter a skill challenge instead, make it just as exciting and that's pretty much exactly what you described there is turning what would normally be a combat encounter into a skill challenge, which you could then turn into a combat once once the outer shell is removed, you could then attack it or you could just make it cinematic. And once it's exposed, just have everyone narrate their one final attack. The fireball goes in, the barbarian rages, the you know rogue throws a dagger and then just let the creature or thing die at that point because you've already had the exciting part of the skill challenge. And I think what we're concluding here is that we are playing a role-playing game. Role-playing are the first two words of what we're doing. If you get to a point where your role-playing, your narration, is more exciting and more rewarding and more cinematic, more narratively cool than what the dice tell you to do, maybe you should lean that way. I'm Professor Crunch here. I look at the numbers. I like the rules. I like how it all works. But narration and fun trumps math. And if it gets to a point where the players come up with this crazy idea to rip the armor off this hulking monstrosity, I'm just going to let them do it because it's cool. It's cool. 
And I don't care that I have a thing with 100 hit points and an AC of 25. That doesn't matter anymore. Because they came up with a way to make the story more exciting. And, and that's what matters. The story is what matters here. I completely agree. And I just want to kind of reiterate a couple of the points that you made just to kind of bring it home as we wrap up. Try to find a way to say yes. You know, even my immediate reaction upon hearing that question was, I don't know. I don't know if I'd say yes, because, but in talking through it, we we both came up with two to three different ways that we could say yes, kind of keep it balanced. But ultimately we would say, yeah, I do think we should do that because the moment that it happens is worth what you would have to do otherwise. If you're going to say yes, which we both think you should, try to make it in a way that is just as effective as if they just did the normal thing. Because if it's not, they're going to stop trying to do cool things because it's punishing, which again is my issue with the 3.5 version that I can roll really well and then still fail. And if I had rolled that well on an attack, I should have just done that. So which, which is why I don't like the posable rolls, even though it makes sense. I'm sure it's balanced better that way. I just don't like it. You always have advantage, disadvantage that you can utilize if you just want to, you know, you could just color it with flavor and say, just attack normally. And I'll just, you know, some of your damage comes off, but they get disadvantage or, or the, all the people who attack get advantage for the next round. That's super simple, but you could flavor it as the armor's falling off in pieces. It doesn't have to be one time and they're naked. Maybe the, one of the shoulder pieces come off. Maybe, like I said, the breastplate comes loose. But ultimately, try to find a way to say yes if you can. And if in your head this battle was going to go a certain way because they have this huge armor class, and now that armor class is gone, you're behind the screen. Make it work. I love what you said. Move the magic to a belt. Move it to a ring. Move it to the sword. Again, inflate their hit points. And don't tell anybody so that the battle isn't over too quickly for in your mind. But if you just don't let it work, whatever it is, because that doesn't fit what you thought would happen, now you're crossing into that territory of removing players' agency. And the thing that you thought was cool is probably not as cool as what they saw in their head when they came up with the idea. And they're going to have a less fun time because of it. And, you know, I want to wrap that up with using one of your own techniques here, Michael. When something weird happens in the game, and your players notice it, sometimes you just sit back and say, yeah, that is weird, isn't it? So <laughs> if the big bad got his armor cut off, but still takes a full combat to kill, and a player says, wait a minute, we cut off his armor. Why did it take so long to kill? I was stabbing him in the chest the whole time. Yeah, that is weird, isn't it? Maybe you should figure it out. <laughs> and now you have a hook to why was this guy protected? Was it magics? Is it his his heritage? Who is he working for? Now your players are going crazy to figure out why this dude didn't die when they stabbed him after you cut off his armor. Now it's more exciting. <laughs> yeah, that is weird, isn't it? I do love that. It's so, so versatile. It's almost like advantage disadvantage. It's just so versatile. <laughs> of course, now we know it translates to I fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> Shh. Thank you so much for participating. Again, I knew you, you didn't know what the topic was when we came into it. I, I do like to do that with Caleb because I have an idea what, what we're talking about. He doesn't because it's more fun for me that way. That's how this entire network operates. I have no <laughs> clue what's happening until Michael says, hey, go God, go do this. God damn it. Oh, God. Oh. Uh, but I thought that was a great conversation. I'm, I'm actually very, very excited about how that turned out. And hopefully anyone listening feels the same. 
Uh, we're going to transition now into the back half of the uh, episode. We're going to talk a little bit about Gen Con, uh, my recent trip. Unfortunately, Caleb wasn't able to go. Normally, we wrap up with uh, reviews. I can already tell we're going to run a little bit long. So we're going to go ahead and we'll just push that off till next time. So we'll just wrap up with uh, the Gen Con recap. As we've done in the past, I'll just kind of let you sort of interview me and we can just hit some of the highlights. Cool. Yeah. So I did not go to Gen Con this year, but this was your second or third or fourth time going. I think fourth, but I'm not really sure. I, I really At think least it's third. I, I think it's third. Actually, I thought about it. I think this is my third. Let's go with third. Let's go with when third. in doubt, the first time you went, you were 12, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it's true. Which is not true to any listeners. That's a joke. That's a throwback. Go listen to old episodes and figure it out. You have a challenge. So you approached Gen Con a little differently this year. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the highlights of your favorite moments, but I think talking about your plans for Gen Con is important here because it, it talks about what your focus was and what your what you want out of Gen Con, and that's changed a little bit over the years. Yeah, uh, the first year that I went was amazing, and we've talked covered it before. The very quick version is I'd never gone to any convention before, went to Gen Con, and I just absolutely loved it to the point that I'm angry at myself for not going before because someday I will die, and there are Gen Cons I cannot get back. But I also overscheduled and tried to fill every second of my moment there with something I was doing, and it really burned me out. And despite the fact that I had a lot of fun, it was still exhausting. So what I sort of worked towards, and this year was sort of the ultimate version of that, is I scheduled much, much less than I normally did, and I left room for doing pickup games. So I ended up doing almost as much as I normally would do. I still had a full schedule, and I still ended up feeling rushed, but there was only one event that I actually bought a ticket for at Gen Con. Everything else, other than things that I ran, was just meeting with people and playing in games with people I've met on the internet, through Twitter, people that are in the network or ancillary to the network. And essentially, at this point, I'm starting to have Gen Con friends, people that I can only game with when I'm at Gen Con. And I look more and more forward to that than any of the official events that are in the schedule. So why do you think this is more exciting to you now? than just going to Gen Con and playing every crazy new game, sampling new games, demoing new stuff, roaming the, the vendor hall and sampling or, or playtesting new things that are coming out. Why are you more interested in tracking down your Gen Con buddies and finding a corner to play a game? I think that speaks more to just my personality. And again, the people who've been listening for the last few years know that, you know, I enjoy the role-playing aspect of role-playing games much more than the game's point. I'm very social and I enjoy that. So just learning about new systems, it's fun and I think it's cool, but it's to me, it's more fun to get to meet people and, and play with them and, and build these connections. You know, I've, I've said before, one of the best things about our podcast has been the community that has grown up around it. And, you know, we have people that I'm truly friends with now that I only know because of this podcast, yourself included. We met uh, when I had the original co-host. You listened to the show and we started talking. And next thing you know, when, when I needed a co-host, you stepped on board. And now you've been around forever since then. I'm sure you regret that. Biggest mistake <laughs> of my life. But uh, but there's so many people that I've I've met, quote unquote, met through Twitter and, you know, through our, our, our podcast that I want to interact with. And it's just very, very cool. And it's very satisfying. And it's a lot of fun. And, you know, 
again, I, I don't want this to move into the part where it sounds braggadocious, but within certain circles, we have a bit of a following. People know us. And so we have an opportunity that maybe most, maybe some people can't do, as, as what I'm trying to say. But I have people who are really good at running games who want to play games with me. They want me to participate in their games. So it's it's also kind of an honor. I, I got to play this year with Chris Hussey from Fear the Boot. Fear the Boot's the newest member of the RPG Academy Network. Chris has been in and, you know, in and out of their show for a while, uh, You know, was a co-host for a while, a uh, very knowledgeable DM. And he said, I want you to play in one of my games. So, of course, I'm going to say yes. And then I got to play with Kevin, who's also on our network, and Brad, who's one of my at-home players. And it was probably the best best game there. Honestly, I would say it was probably my favorite event was this little side game that I got to play with just three other, two other players, actually. And that's not an experience that you're normally going to get at Gen Con. It was an intimate game in a crowd of 60,000 gamers. And that is exactly what... I like to hear about Gen Con that that type of connection and enjoyment can happen even though there's a million and a half people crammed into a city that can't handle it in 14 <laughs> different buildings. So I'm very glad that you are able to create these moments that you value and treasure so much. But uh, mushy stuff out of the way. Uh, we're going to talk about games. Come on. This is a gaming podcast. Uh, you said you registered for one official game, and I saw the pictures go online. This was a pretty cool game. Let's talk about this game. So this was a game that was ran by Carl Kessler. He's a, a gentleman I follow on Google+, and he does, I will say, world-class paper craft minis for his games and also just like Photoshop stuff. I, I don't even know how to tell you what he does. But like when we showed up and this game was Savage Worlds and it was Goonies meets Ghostbusters. And as a Hold on, uh, hold uh, on. Yeah. Let that let that hit home for a moment. Goonies yeah, Goonies meets Ghostbusters. Uh which again, I love both of those movies and I like Savage Worlds. So that was kind of a no-brainer. Plus I had been talking to Carl on, on through Google Plus and I I wanted to play one of his games. But he does these amazing amazing Photoshop again projects pieces i don't know so like there's the character sheets look like an action figure box with the plastic clamshell removed and some of them even had like the 99 cent price tag sticker on them so on the front you had their name and some of their attributes and on the back you had like rules uh he did paper craft minis for the ecto one and uh the uh proton packs and i mean just again if you haven't looked go go search the pictures i posted on twitter these things are world class papercraft they're amazing and again it's goonies versus ghostbusters so i was it was a fun game the only criticism i would have and this is something we've talked about before and i'll just blanket statement i don't like playing games that have too many players and for me too many is five or more uh, well i'll say more than five five's okay but it's not my favorite i prefer four or less and this game ended up i think with seven which you kind of had to have because you got goonies and ghostbusters you need a good mixture of both for the theme to really play out but I just find that in, in most games, especially at Gen Con, you're going to sit down at six. It's very rare to play in a game at Gen Con with less than six. And I've played as many as eight. And despite the fact that I had a lot of fun and there's some really awesome moments that happened in that game, I probably would have enjoyed it more with, a, with less players. Even though every player at the table is great. I don't want anybody to think I don't mean that. But there's just so much going on and everybody having to participate 
Uh, it just basically, it's less time for things to grow, for scenes to play out and let some of the RP happen because you got to move, because you got four hours at the Gen Con game. You got to have a beginning, got to have a middle, you got to have an end. Uh, you know, you, you have to push things as a DM and just with that many players, sometimes that means scenes have to get cut short. Or in some cases, some players didn't even really get to go. Like we would get into a, a scene, we'd roll like our initiative and the scene would be over before everyone at the table had got to go. And that's, again, that's a criticism of games with more than six players, not that one specifically. Yeah, the more people you have, the more difficult it is to give everyone cool spotlight moments. Uh, but at least you had a great time in the game. It was a well-run game, uh, a well-supported game with props and cool, tangible things for everyone to interact with. And obviously you had a blast playing that game. There's, there's no doubt in that. Oh, absolutely. I got to play Mikey. And uh, basically, I just pretended like I was huffing my inhaler all the time. Uh, but some of the people, like the guy who played Mouth was excellent. Um, the guy who played Sloth did a fantastic job. Vingman was hilarious. He was coming up with the one-liners. The guy who played Winston was, you know, was Winston. So, yeah, I mean, all the players, even though I, I, part of me wishes we had fewer players, those actual players, everyone did a really good job. So I was really happy with their RP that was able to happen. Cool, cool. Now, I know that Gen Con is uh, pretty legendary for its vendors hall, for everything that you can buy, track down, witness. Can I get a witness? <laughs> I know that you approached the vendors hall with a mission this year. You were tracking down something very specific. Yes. So just a couple things there. This year, they actually expanded Gen Con outside of the ICC, which is the Indianapolis Commission Center. Uh, and they moved some of the events into the Lucas Oil Stadium, which is catty-cornered, you know, like two-tenths of a mile away, basically. And all the true dungeon stuff went over there. I think the costume contest went over there and there's some other things. And essentially, they used that room they made to expand the dealer hall to make it even bigger. You know, vendor space at Gen Con sells out quickly. People pay a lot of money for the opportunity to show there. And so this allowed them to bring in more, give more room for people to, to be vendors, and it also let it spread out a little bit because it is a lot of people and it's a big space, but it feels small within, when you got that many people in there. And sometimes it's hard to navigate through. Uh, but yes, I went there. I had three items on my list to buy. Legendary Marvel Civil War, which is the new expansion. Legendary Encounters Firefly. And then Big Trouble in Little China Legendary. So all three of them were legendary card games. And Big Trouble in Little China was probably the one that was at the top of that list. And I'm happy to say I got all three of them. Now, I haven't played Legendary, but I know it's a great game. And I absolutely love Big Trouble in Little China. I will happily cede to the fact that you love it more than me, though. But only because you're older. <laughs> and you've had more time to love it i've had more time okay 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 so it's, it's just a, i've absorbed it deeper into the center of my being than you have yes yes i i didn't grow up watching it i love big trouble in little china it's, it's a terrible movie but it it is so awesome in its terribleness that i just i do love it and uh if you like the legendary games then this is this is legendary. It plays just like the Marvel Legendary. It, it it's weird. It, it is kind of weird because it's not an encounter. And if you played any legendary games, and I know you specifically Caleb, haven't, but anyone listening, there's you know the Alien Encounters. I think there's Alien versus Predator Encounters. There's now Firefly Encounters. Those games work very similar, but they are there are some differences to how those play. 
Big Trouble in Little China plays just like the original Marvel version, not the Encounters version, but it's a themed one-off game, which is is weird. I I don't exactly know why they put the two together. This was like the 30th anniversary of Big Trouble in Little China, so maybe that's why. But if you love Marvel, leg- or I should say, if you love the Legendary game and you love Big Trouble in Little China, this is a no-brainer purchase. If you like either of those two, then you're still going to be okay. Uh, they actually had the Pork Chop Express in the vendor hall and you could like see it and take pictures and it it was awesome. Uh, I think I spent more money on card sleeves than I did on anything else because of course I had to sleeve all my cards before I could play with them. But I did get to play Big Trouble in China a couple days ago. Um, I'm working on a sort of a review that actually might be out even before you hear this possibly. Uh, But it's basically legendary. There's a couple little twists that... uh, that are interesting. You rather than starting with 12 basic cards, you start with 10 and then you have two random quote unquote mediocre hero cards, which are like powered down versions of all, of some of the heroes, but they have special abilities. So they're like, they're more powerful than basic cards, but not as powerful as normal cards. The uh, Mara Hill equivalent is uncle Chu and he has an ability to let you call cards out of your hand. So you can get rid of your bad cards faster. Uh, the map, it, it does come with the play mat, which is pretty standard now for these games. They've designated two areas, the streets and the rooftops as quote unquote Chinatown. And there's co- cards that combo off of being played in there or out of there or that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you like legendary and, or you like big trouble in little China, this is worth getting. If you like both of them, absolutely. You need to have it. It's fantastic. All righty. Well, with that glowing endorsement, uh, let's see. We hit what you bought. We hit uh, a highlight game. We talked about what your big motivation was in Gen Con and, and how you approach that to, to game with uh, friends that you had made and really have those great times. We touched on the Ennies at the top of the episode here. What else do you want to say about Gen Con? Any, any great moments you want to share? Any cool events we want to touch on briefly? Yeah, just uh, three things, and I'll make them fairly quick, especially for me, is we had the pre-Gen Con event, which uh, we're trying to make an annual event. It happens on Wednesday evening because there's not a lot of gaming activities that are scheduled. Uh, So we basically try to do like an RPG Academy event. And a lot of people that I know either personally or through the website came. I got to meet um, Rich Howard who's been a longtime fan of ours and a friend, uh, Umbral Walker on Twitter. Uh, he and I have conversed several times. We played games together. And uh, so he's one of those people that is, is a friend of mine because of our show. So I got to put, you know, fi- finally actually meet him. Again, I, I, this is the part I hate is I'm going to start name dropping. Like, because I there's so many people that I met there through the, these events and others. But I met Rich, um, Jim, and Emily were there. Cinda and Emily stopped in for a little while from She's a Super Geek. Kevin from Melvin Smith's Geek Creek stopped in for a little while. Uh, there's some people who knew us who wanted to come game. There's some other people who just saw that we had a gaming event. But I think all told, we had around 24, maybe 30 people at the most that filtered in and out. It The, the location was beautiful, but it was kind of hard to get to. And there's some people that I met or I, I saw on Twitter later were like, I couldn't find you. Um, which is something we got to work out for next year. But it was a lot of fun to do that, and it's something we are going to try to continue to do every year. So if you go to Gen Con or if you're going to go for the first time and you want to do some gaming events, uh, look for ours on the schedule so you can come hang out with us. And then uh, I want to touch on the Scooby-Doo Dread game that I ran because that was awesome. Again, people who've been listening for a while know I I like to mess around with Dread. I I only recently started playing it, but I love it because it, it creates a very unique experience. 
And I like to kind of mess with that a little bit. Uh, so I do a D&D Dread game. I do a Star Wars Return of the Dread Eye game. And for this Gen Con, I wrote a Scooby-Doo mystery, which is Scooby died 20 years ago, mysteriously. And the other four characters receive a note that says, I know who killed Scooby-Doo. And it's set up kind of like the movie Clue. They're all, you know, they haven't seen each other since Scooby died. It's been 20 years. They all come to this house under the pretense that someone is going to reveal to them who killed Scooby-Doo. And it really, it, I should sell it as Scooby-Doo meets Clue because all of the characters have some secrets that they are trying to keep hidden, but they also want to know who killed Scooby. And then the game is sort of based off of off of that. Originally, I was going to give, I was going to put the module that I wrote on the website after Gen Con, but I really want to run it one more time. I think I'm going to run it at a Catacon. So I'm going to hold off on posting it until after that, in case somebody reads it who wants to play it and you know, gives away uh, some of the some of the secrets. But it was a lot of fun, and I want to thank the people who came and, and played. Uh, I remember Tyler, Aaron, and I think Rex, and I apologize, I can't remember the other lady's name. Uh, but what the thing I want to point out most is that she told me, you know, I don't role play a whole lot. I'm a little nervous. And she was awesome. So I apologize. I don't remember your name, but you were awesome. Thank you guys for playing. I had a lot of fun, and hopefully you did as well. Wonderful. Well, I think it's safe to say that your Gen Con 2016 was an excellent experience. It was. But I do want to mention one more thing. Ah, um, okay, Columbo. Sorry. I'm sorry. Just, uh, just one more thing. That's my Columbo. God, that was worse than your Jamaican impression. No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> hey, Go back and listen. Hey, th- hey new <laughs> listeners. What was that a throwback to? What was that joke about? You've got another challenge. Go listen. <laughs> but uh, but one of our listeners, um, Peter, uh, wanted to play a game with me. He uh, he was there with his kids and his godsons. And so on Sunday, our last day, we had set up like an open gaming area as well. And he came over and he ran like a two-hour session of D&D 5e with me as one of the players. Uh, he knew that I was going to be bit distracted with hosting duties. So he, he created a pregen for me that was easily distracted. So we were able to just sort of meta anytime I had to jump up and go do something. It was my character just being, you know, uninvolved in the situation. Uh, the pregen was great. I thought Peter did an amazing job running it considering we only had a couple hours and the, the, the you know, me being distracted and jumping up and down, we were able to have a coherent story. And he told me afterwards that he thought it was a great game. His family really enjoyed playing with me. He said they're very focused on like the challenge and to see someone that was really focused on role play and just trying to make scenes funny and get people involved and not really caring about numbers or rolling uh, was a bit of a different experience. And they seemed to really enjoy it. And on the road home, they were talking about it um, and they actually may end up coming to a catacomb, uh, not necessarily because of that, but, but that, you know, sort of connected that they want to experience more of that type of role playing, that type of games going on. Peter did actually end up winning one of our Catacomb badges that we were giving away. But if he brings his family, we come out four ahead. So yay, marketing. Uh, and that's my Gen Con stories. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing your Gen Con experiences. Uh, I think it is. Wait, there's what? Uh, I'm just shut up, Columbo. <laughs> that's what I never got about the show. Just shut the goddamn door in his face. Actually, so I, simple. I, actually, I. Actually, I do have to say one more oh, thing. Oh, son of a b- Because one of the other games I got to play in, uh, Rich ran for us, and I got to play with uh, Shane and Ishan from Total Party Thrill, and I also got to meet James Intracasco and uh, Rudy Basso. Uh, James, never met him before, but we had talked recently on Twitter. 
awesome, awesome dude. And I'm not saying those other people weren't awesome, but James was awesome. He won an any for best blog and he invited me to come to this thing he had no need to invite me to. And it was awesome. He's just an awesome dude. And I want to give him a shout out. I'm waiting for you to say something else. And you know what? That's enough. All I don't right. want to go through my entire itinerary. If you guys follow me on Twitter, you can go back. I was pretty much live tweeting everything so you can hear it there. I will be at Gen Con next year unless something crazy happens. And again, if someone's brand new, you heard me say a catacon. We do our own convention in November in Ohio. So maybe check that out. That is exactly what I was trying to get to, uh, but you kept interrupting me. Uh, through the course of this episode, we have mentioned the name Akatacon several times. If you are unsure of what that is, uh, swing over to theacatacon.com or therpgacademy.com or our Facebook pages. You will see all kinds of stuff about it. Basically, last year, we decided to go extra stupid crazy and run our own gaming convention here in Ohio. Uh, 2016 is going to be our second annual event. It will be in the Dayton Convention Center, Dayton, Ohio, November 11th, 12th, and 13th. Tickets are still available. We have tons of space. We are selling those on Eventbrite. You can follow the links in the show notes or online. We've got vendors. We've got events. We have an Artemis Space Bridge. We're going to have a raffle. We're going to have giveaways. We have a ton of events to happen if you've never been to a gaming convention, a catacon is a perfect place to get your feet wet and figure it out. If you've been to plenty and you are feeling that post-summer convention blues, a catacon is a perfect place to scratch that itch and keep everything going. Right now, a catacon's small. It's all about hanging out, playing games, chilling with your friends, doing cool stuff. We also have some very cool guests on the roster, and these are not just guests to shake their hands and get their autograph at their vendor's booth or listen to them talk in a panel, these guests are here to sit down and play games. They might run a game they created. They might run a game they just like. They may sit down and say, hey, man, what are you running? I'm bored. Let me play with you. And if that sounds interesting to you, you should definitely come and check it out. Uh, you know, maybe you've heard of the guys that wrote Dungeons and Dragons. They're going to be there. Some of them, at least. Not Gary Gygax, because he's dead. But some of the other guys, they'll be there. Uh, I'm not even <laughs> going to tell you who some of these cool guests are. You need to go over to theacatacon.com. Check it out. Check out our social media. Acatacon's a great time, guys. I, I know it's our convention. I know we're plugging it. But we don't make money on this. We host this to have fun. And we want you to come. We want you to come hang out with us. We want to put faces to the names that we see on the internet. We want to sit down and play games with you. If that's D&D, if that's Monopoly, if that's a couple hands of a card game, a, a catacon is a weekend just to hang out and have Big fun. Trouble in Little China Legendary or Scooby-Doo Dread. The games that I'm going to run that I'm not telling you about because they're super secret and cool. Yes, a catacon is <laughs> a blast. So be sure to check it out. Think about coming down and... You know, thanks for listening. If you are a new listener, thank you so much for checking us out and visiting us here at the Academy. We've got some awesome network members. We've got a huge backlog of episodes. There's a lot of cool stuff to check out, guys. So thanks for coming by, and uh, we hope you stick around. Yeah, absolutely. And then let us know. I've already had a couple people that have told me they heard us on the uh, Dragon Talk podcast, and they found me on Twitter and said hello. Please let us know that you're stopping in so we can say hi. 
And if you do stick around for a while and you do listen and you do like some of what you're hearing, you know, a review on iTunes, five star or not, would not be uh, a bad thing. We are not going to read our recent ones. We have a few backlogged because we're running long. But I would like for the next episode, which is going to be our 100th faculty meeting episode, which is a whole different thing that we won't plug, uh, but it's going to be a big deal. But yeah, we would love to read a whole bunch of new reviews uh, from iTunes or Stitcher if you don't have iTunes. Either one is totally okay with us. So Caleb, with all of that out of the way, any last words before we wrap up faculty meeting episode 99? No, I think we've said everything we need to say. Awesome. Well, this has been Michael and for Caleb, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out the RPGacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the drive-thru RPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, The Caleb G, at The Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at The RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.